0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Every day, hundreds of newspapers around the world publish articles that announce to the world what the headline of the day is. These headlines tell us the news. And each of these news statements is not simply information. There's a response that comes with it. Well, I just did a little bit of reading on some of the most important headlines from 2023. And time will tell if these are significant for the future or if they're just going to be blips on the radar. But some of the most important headlines from this year, courtesy of the New York Times, is back in May, the coronation of King Charles III. The British monarch was crowned, coronated on May the 6th. A local newspaper headline on June 12th, the Denver Nuggets beat the Miami Heat for the first NBA championship. That one has lasting significance, obviously. Uh, And they won the first NBA championship. June 18th, just a week later, five lives lost in the Titanic submersible, better known as the Titan submarine, that imploded Uh, in August. Maui town is devastated by deadliest wildfire to strike Hawaii. There were some wildfires in Maui that ended up being very, very devastating, both to property and loss of life. And then you can't talk about 2023 without the headline, We are at war, Netanyahu says, after Hamas attacks Israel on October the 7th. And each of these headlines contain information But they also communicate a response or encourage a response in the readers, whether that is fear or anger, joy or sadness, concern or relief. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, the angel Gabriel had an announcement, a magnificent announcement. That's the title of today's sermon, a magnificent announcement that he came to Mary and told her that God was going to send the Messiah into the world through her, even though she was a virgin. That is headline news. What was Mary's response to that announcement? How did Mary think about that? We're going to try to put ourselves in her shoes here in a moment, but how did this world-changing news affect her? How did she respond to it? And does her response have any bearing on us today? I think the answer to that question is yes. So let's take a closer look at this passage to see what Mary's response was in the first place. And then we'll shift to talk about how her response is an example for us today as we reflect on the birth of the Lord Jesus. So these verses, verses 26 through 38, is one story, but there are three parts. And it's a back and forth, actually. Gabriel appears and he speaks to Mary. Mary responds in some way. that happens three times. The first section, verses 26 through 29, Gabriel visited Mary, and Mary was confused, confused by his greeting. Look at verse 26 with me. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We'll read verse 27 as well. To a virgin betrothed to a Mary whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Like any good story, this opening verse gives us the setting. Where was this taking place? Who are the characters involved? What's going on? Well, the sixth month refers back to the previous story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth had conceived and Gabriel had announced to Zechariah in the temple that this would take place. Now, the problem was that Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. They were past childbearing years. And Zechariah famously doubts the angel and he is struck mute until the baby is born and he writes on a tablet, his name is John and his voice comes back. And so in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel is sent on another mission. God sends him again to a different woman. Her name is Mary. And in verses 26 and 27, we learn three things about Mary. We learn her name that's important. We learn her location, Nazareth, and that would be important because the prophecies talk about the Messiah being out of Galilee from Nazareth. But it tells us, most importantly to us today, what her life situation is. Who is this Mary who lives in Nazareth? She is a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, and that is incredibly important. Now, betrothal is something that we kind of throw around as, as it's equivalent to engagement in today's culture. And there are similarities to that. But betrothal was actually much stronger. Betrothal was a legal agreement where the bride price would already have been paid. And the couple would have been considered married, but they did not live together and did not physically consummate the marriage. It was during this time that the husband was building the home to bring his wife to. And there's a whole big backstory in Jewish culture about how the husband would do this and then unannounced he would show up to take his wife back to her home, which is one of the comparisons that Jesus has to us, that he is building a place for us, John 14, and will someday appear to take us home. So the husband would do this, but they did not consummate the marriage. Yet, they were legally considered married so that To break this arrangement required a divorce, but immorality was considered adultery. So there's this legal agreement that's like marriage today, but without the physical union of it. Now, what might be shocking to you is the normal age for betrothal was 13 to 15. Mary is likely a 13 to 15-year-old young girl. Some of you teenagers who are 13 to 16 are saying, there's no way. That's how old she is. So to to put ourselves in her shoes, she's a teenage girl, probably 13 to 15 years old, formerly engaged, formerly betrothed, publicly bound in marriage to a man named Joseph. We surmise that Joseph was maybe a little older, but we don't know. And Gabriel shows up to this young lady. And this is what he says to her in verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. This conveyed God's great favor on Mary. In fact, it's very similar to the Old Testament story of Gideon, where Gideon is hiding out threshing wheat in a wine press because he's afraid. And God comes to him and says, behold, mighty man of valor. And I kind of picture in my mind's eye, Gideon kind of looks around like, you talking to me? (laughs) A mighty man of valor? I I wonder if Mary had the same response, highly favored one, God's grace being on me. That word favor is from the, the charis word family, which is the word for grace. And Gabriel says, the Lord is with you, which was a blessing. Gabriel is assuring Mary that God's presence was with her. Now, the last phrase there in the New King James, blessed are you among women, is not found in the earliest of manuscripts. So that's why if you're carrying a, a New American Standard or NIV or ESV, it's not in there. But it, it doesn't take away anything from the story. Is Mary blessed? Yes. And in fact, if you look down at verse 42, Elizabeth greets Mary with these words. Mary's response to this greeting is not to say, yep, that's me. I'm highly favored. I'm blessed. She's confused by it. Verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now, it's likely that she was a little bit spooked by this angel coming, but notice what the text says. It says that she was troubled by his greeting. She was listening to what he said and going, "I." are you talking about me? The word trouble doesn't convey the strength of this verb. It means she was perplexed, deeply distressed even, confused by what this meant. So she thought about it. She considered it. And if we read the text of Luke 1 and 2 very carefully, we will know that Mary is actually a very thoughtful young lady. We'll see this on Christmas Eve, but in Luke 2, 19, it says that she treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. Mary was very thoughtful. And here she is thinking and considering why she was favored by God and had the blessing of God's presence with her. And so the next section, Gabriel gets to why he came, but first he reassures her. He reassures her of her status before God, and then announces Jesus' birth. And that leaves Mary really even more confused because at the end of this, her response is to ask for clarification. Look at verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So her confusion is, is mingled with fear. And whenever an angel in Scripture appears to someone, almost always the first words out of their mouth are, Fear not. That's one of the reasons we think that angels are very frightful, because they're, they're intense and amazing, and they're, they're unlike anything we've seen before. Now, if you're thinking angel as in like the Middle Ages cherub with like a halo and a little harp, that's not the right picture. These angels were terrifying, and so they're always conveying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But then Gabriel says at the end of this verse, you have found favor with God. That word favor is again, God's grace. You have found grace with God. You are approved by God. God had extended his grace to Mary. And then he gets in verse 31 to the heart of his announcement. Why did he come? Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Everything else Gabriel says to this basic declaration is is just additional or clarifying information. Simply put, she is going to have a baby and her baby's name is Jesus. And in verses 32 and 33, he's going to share with her who this baby really is. Now in the Bible, there are several times where an angel appears to a lady and says, you're going to have a son or you're going to have a, a, a baby. Most of the time it's son. And the the angel will name the child ahead of time. And that signals that this child is especially important in God's plans. Isaac was that way. John the Baptist was that way, to give two examples. Jesus is that way as well. And in verses 32 and 33, Gabriel gives five declarations, five statements that explain who this baby is. Everything else that he's going to say builds to this point. Now, before we read these verses, we need to step back because Gabriel isn't just appearing in a random village to a random young lady at a random point in time. Galatians 4 4 and 5 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This was the exact moment in God's sovereign plan to redeem mankind. And when Jesus came into the world through the Virgin Mary, it wasn't out of the blue. If we back up to the Old Testament, there were several prophecies that foreshadowed what he was going to do. And really, this announcement draws from two main passages. We're gonna, I'm going to put them up on the screen here in a moment. Two passages in the Old Testament that, that previewed the Messiah and that any God-fearing Jew would have recognized on reading this text. The first of those passages is 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. But in 2 Samuel 7, David is receiving the blessing, the promise of God that we know as the Davidic covenant. And there are three verses I want you to see. 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, God says to David, I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Okay lock in that idea of great name. We're going to see that again. God continues in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now there was a a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment of this is his son, Solomon, who literally did sit after David on his throne. But the seed here, as Galatians shows us, was referring to David, was referring not to Solomon, but to Jesus. His kingdom, verse 16, will be established forever. God says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And there are really only two ways that you can have an eternal kingdom. Either you have to continue to have a successive line of descendants that never get overthrown and never die out. Or you have a single individual who is eternal. And that is Jesus. The second major Old Testament passage is actually the one that we used in our call to worship today. It's Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God... Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we have an answer to that dilemma. How do you have an eternal kingdom? The way that this is going to happen is there will be a single individual who will reign forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Will perform this. So, with that background in mind, Gabriel's announcement explicitly connected this baby boy in Mary's womb to these messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Notice how Mary's baby is described. Let me read the verses, then we'll tackle them one by one the phrases. Gabriel says, This child will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you hear the similarities there? The first phrase, he will be great. God called David great in 2 Samuel 7, 9. David's son will also be great. Now, we use this word great frequently, just like we use the word awesome frequently. You know, everything is awesome. Everything's great out there, right? Uh, We... We use the word great to describe a shopping discount. In fact, I was telling Jeannie today about the bookstore. I got a great deal on some books this week, a great deal. Uh, We use the word great with animals, right? A great white shark. Yes, my boys went to the aquarium this week. Fish are on the brain. Uh, we, We even have hotels, the Great Wolf Lodge, or athletes. We refer to some athletes as the greatest of all time. But in the Old Testament, greatness wasn't thrown around like this. Greatness is actually an attribute of God alone, emphasizing how exalted and how unrivaled God is. So when Gabriel calls this baby great, he's not just saying, hey, he's a pretty good kid. He's elevating this child to the same category as the Old Testament Yahweh. And the next phrase points to this as well. He will be called a son of the highest. Highest was another term in the Old Testament that referred exclusively to God. In fact, God has a name that means God most high. It's El Elyon, E-L-Y-O-N, God most high. This separated the one true God from all the other pagan gods around because every, every nation had deities, They had gods that they worship. Some of them, like the Greeks and the Romans, had pantheons full of gods. Israel had one God and he is the true God. But this baby is to be a son of the highest. Now, does that mean that he is a physical progeny of the highest? Son here does not refer to physical descent, but it refers to being of the same class. You say, that's that's ludicrous. Actually, if you read the Old Testament, Many times, priests are called the son of priests. It's a group of people or the son of the prophets. When the scriptures call Jesus the son of God, it's not saying that he descended from God physically, like the Mormons believe. It's saying that he belongs in the same category as God. Isaiah 9 6 says that his name will be called Mighty God. Here it is, mighty God. And this mighty God will sit on the throne of his father David. And that refers back certainly to 2 Samuel 7. Jesus will reign forever as the greatest son of David. And there are a number of other passages that describe his reign, including Isaiah 9 7, which is why I read those two texts for you. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Uh, Micah 4, seven says, So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And just to make sure that we understand that Jesus' reign is going to be eternal, there's a final phrase. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we're not talking about forever like for a thousand years or forever for like 50 years. We're talking about forever, forever. It doesn't end. And this is almost word for word from Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Daniel 7, 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Now pause for a moment and and go back to that scene in that house in Nazareth and put yourself in Mary's shoes, 13, 14, 15-year-old Mary. This angel has just shown up out of the blue and said, You're going to have a baby, and he's going to be the Messiah, and he's going to rule forever. Any one of those announcements would be weighty and mind blowing. And her response is actually full of faith because she's not going to fight the angel. She's not going to say, No, 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 no not me, like Moses did she's actually going to ask for clarification because she can't get past the you're going to have a baby part. That, that's where her mind is stuck because that's impossible. Women don't spontaneously conceive. It doesn't happen. There has to be a physical relationship. But she's pure. She wants to remain pure. She's betrothed and knows that she cannot have a relationship with her husband. So in verse 34, she asks about her dilemma. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I don't know a man. How will this be since I don't know a man intimately? Her response is not to doubt or challenge the angel. And if you compare her response to Zechariah's response a few verses earlier, the wording is very similar. But based on the angel's response, we understand that Zechariah's response was skeptic and Mary's response was full of belief. Because Zechariah was struck with muteness. He couldn't talk. Mary is answered. Her question is addressed. And her question leads to the biblical explanation of the virgin birth. In verses 35 to 38, Gabriel explains the miraculous conception, and Mary responds with submission. Look at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So Mary's question is, how, is this, how can this even happen? And the answer is the Holy Spirit is going to do a miracle. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and overshadow you. And the result of his work is that you will conceive. And there's a parallelism here, I think, between this passage and Genesis chapter 1 where the Holy Spirit came and brooded over the waters, and out of nothing he acted in creation. God's Spirit will do something impossible, and the result will be that this baby is the Son of God. He is deity. He is God. And this is the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that, God, that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is 100% God and 100% man. And though that may be humanly impossible, it wasn't unheard of. Because again, to the Jewish ear, this would have had echoes of Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And it's pure speculation to know if Mary remembered that passage or not. But we have the benefit of drawing a direct line from Isaiah 7.14 to this passage right here. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And then Gabriel keeps talking. And what he says next is a little bit surprising. He says in verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And that may seem a little bit like a curveball, but what Gabriel is doing is showing her that God has already done a miracle. God has worked in Elizabeth's body, Though she was barren, though she was too old to conceive, a miracle has been done there. And this reference to Elizabeth then does two things, two very important things. First, it links the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. And really, their two lives will be linked for the rest of their lives. Because John's role is the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Both of these births had miraculous circumstances. The second thing that this reference does is it gives Mary comfort that impossible things can happen because they already have. Because Elizabeth, her cousin that's too old to have a child, she's conceived already, she's six months along. Mary's conception will not be the only miracle. In verse 37, simply and succinctly states the reason that all this can happen for with god nothing is impossible with god nothing is impossible gabriel's answer to her question has an explanation an illustration and a reason and mary's response shows us that it's good enough for her then mary said verse 38 Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary submitted to the word of the Lord. Mary's response is full of faith. I yield to the Lord's will, she says. May this announcement come true, just as you said. And she had to understand the social consequences that would have been down the road for her. That she is an unwed girl, betrothed but not married, to have a baby could only mean one thing, that she had been immoral. And though she would explain, no, an angel came to me and he told me that, that God is going to do something miraculous in me and then I'm going to have a baby, she knew that that response, most people would look at her with a little bit of an eyebrow and say, sure he did. Right, an angel appeared, yeah. You couldn't think of a better story? and And so she, and, and maybe she didn't think through all the consequences in that moment, but maybe she did. Either way, what does she do? She yields herself to the Lord's will. She says, "Do to me as you wish. My life is in your hands." So Mary has three responses to Gabriel, and what's the common denominator in each of these three? I think it's the word humility. Each of Mary's responses, demonstrate profound humility. In verse 29, she's troubled by the angelic greeting. Why? Because she didn't view herself highly. She doesn't view herself as someone great. When he addresses her in this way, she's perplexed, confused, troubled. Clearly, she does not believe herself to be great. She's modeling what Romans 12.3 says, which commands us as believers to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's a mark of humility. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought in verse thirty four Mary is simply asking for clarification about the conception and, and this shows her humility that she 's not just arrogantly rejecting it or making fun of the angel but but honestly wrestling, grappling with the nature of this prophecy and there are times where we have questions with the Lord that there are doubts that we have in our hearts and and if we ask. In humility, God doesn't turn us away. We can't shake our fist at God and say, you owe me an explanation. God doesn't owe us anything. But if we come to him and say, Lord, I don't understand. Please help me. Can, can you show me what you mean? God is going to respond to that. He gives grace to the humble. The third thing Mary did to show her, her humility was to willingly submit to the Lord's plan. She doesn't try to get away from it. In fact, she's a a more model citizen than many Old Testament people. Moses tries to get out of being the deliverer. Gideon's trying to do this fleece thing so he can get out of Dodge. Barak, he can't go into battle unless a woman comes with him. All these men are weak in faith and Mary stands there and says, okay, I'll do it. Talk about simple trust, and submission that sprung out of humility. And it begs a question for us. Do we have the same humility, submission? When God calls us to do something, are we this fast to agree and to say, I yield to you? He's not asking us to do something this crazy, quote unquote, but do we struggle to agree? Do we struggle to yield to the Lord? Now, I I think we could make application about each of these points individually, but what I'd like to do is to step back and take this idea of humility. She had a humble approach to Gabriel's announcement, and I want to take that and apply it to us today, because her humility gives us an example of how to respond to Jesus's incarnation. And there are other responses. We're going to see them next week. There are responses of joy and wonder and peace. But one of the things that we don't think about a lot is that Jesus' birth calls for deep humility. When we see the magnitude and the weight and the glory of it, it should cause us to get a little humble. Why? Well, let me give you four reasons briefly here why humility is the right response to the magnitude of Jesus' birth. First and simply, Let's get our minds around the fact that God came to earth as a baby. And and if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, 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 I've thought about that a lot. And I've sung about that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I got that. No, no, no. Stop and think. God became a human being. This son of the highest and the son of God took on a body. And we have many songs in our Christmas repertoire that talk about this. My favorite is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. One of the newer songs that we sung last week, uh, Joy Has Dawn, says it this way. Hands that set each star in place, shaped the earth in darkness, cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. God became a man. And, And even further, Jesus didn't have to become a baby right? It was necessary, Hebrews 2 says, that he would become a man, but Jesus could have just showed up out of the desert. He could have walked out of the Arabian desert into a town and just started his ministry. He could have done that. That option was available to him. He didn't have to gestate and develop a body and pass through the birth canal. He didn't have to learn to roll over and to sit up and to feed himself and to walk. He didn't have to learn to speak or share with his siblings, or use the tools of his father, or memorize the law with the other boys in his village. By becoming a baby, the God of all the universe, Colossians 1 says, for whom and by whom all things were made, demonstrates humility. And if God would humble himself to become a man, what response does that that evoke in us? Great humility. That God came to earth as a baby. Don't lose the wonder of that. But there's a second reason for humility because Jesus is the king. Remember how Gabriel described Jesus to Mary? He will be great. He will have a throne. He will reign forever because his kingdom will have no end. This little baby was destined to be a king. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you see that there's something disjointed because the way that Jesus lived did not appear to be kingly. He didn't own a home, let alone a kingdom. He didn't command an army. He didn't set up a government. He died as a criminal, not a dignitary. Yet, if you read closely, Jesus acted like a king because he is a king, though a king of a different kind. He gave laws to govern his subjects. He called his people to store up wealth in another kingdom. He rode into the royal city on a kingly animal, a donkey. And when he died, what was his crime? The king of the Jews. Pilate actually got that one right. Is Jesus a king? Indeed, yes, he is. And when he returns a second time, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that Jesus is a king. Because this time he will ride on a white horse coming to conquer and to reign the Bible says that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so if he is a king, then what, are, what should our response be? To resist his rule? To rebel against his authority? No. To yield to him. And so if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ as the Savior, he's a king, but he's not your king yet. You need forgiveness of your sins You are part of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, 12 through 14. And through the ministry of Jesus, he can transfer you to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of his dear son. And for those of us who name the name of Christ, we have to to remember that we're not in charge of our lives anymore. Jesus died for all so that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus is the king. We bow the knee to him. And yet Jesus isn't the type of king that has no concern for ordinary people. He doesn't set us aside as spoils of war of, hey, look at all the people I got. He, like like Mary, he uses ordinary people. We, like Mary, I should say, are used. Mary was just an ordinary girl. We're just ordinary people. I don't know if there's anyone with royalty here. I don't know if there's anyone in Hollywood or making billions of dollars. I don't think many of us or any of us, maybe, would be considered the elite of this world. And yet, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? God has not chosen many of those people. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I'm thankful for that because that's me. Not many mighty, not many powerful, not many wise. But God chooses to use us. How humbling is that? That the God of all the universe who spoke the world into existence says, I'm going to use you. Well, how does he use us? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the treasure? The treasure is the news of the gospel. It's the glorious news of Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. How does God use us? He uses us to share Christ with other people. And during the holiday season, during the Christmas season, there are many opportunities to do that. And so I, I don't want you to feel guilty of this, like, oh, I've got to tell 10 people about Jesus or else I'm not a good Christian. I want you to feel so overwhelmed and humbled that God would use you that you can't but help share him. That, wow, if if God would use me and he saved me, then he can do this for you. That should be our attitude toward the one who uses ordinary people. Finally, we respond in humility because Jesus was born for you and for me. If you were in a dangerous situation and someone came and rescued you out of it, maybe you were out late at night, and you happen to take a wrong turn and you end up in a seedy part of town and a police officer just happens to drive by, you would be so incredibly grateful because they rescued you from certain danger. How much more then should we rejoice and give thanks to the Lord who has rescued us from certain danger because Jesus came for you. He saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and he loved us. And he came to earth and said, I'm going to rescue those wretched people that I love. And if if salvation could be accomplished in any way other than through Jesus, then the whole Christmas season is just nonsensical. It doesn't matter. Why would Jesus have to come if you and I could save ourselves? But what does Jesus say? What does Gabriel say here in this passage? With God, nothing is impossible. Now that phrase, with God nothing is impossible, appears later in the Gospels, but it's on the lips of Jesus this time. There's a rich young ruler, we talked about him last week, and he comes to Jesus and he walks away from Christ because he doesn't want to make Jesus the treasure of his life. He loves his money too much. And the disciples are are kind of like, what is going on here? And Jesus says, look at how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're floored. They say, well, who then can be saved? If the rich can't get in, then who who gets in? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Your salvation, my salvation is something only God could do. And so Jesus came. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, he came for you. And he didn't stay a baby. Jerry did a great job introducing, is he worthy? Because he grew up and he lived and he died and he rose and he is worthy. He's worthy of your honor and blessing. And for those of us who know him as Savior, this truth, this remembering the gospel that Jesus came for you and me should humble us. As Romans 3, 27 says, what then is our boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded. There is no reason to boast. Jesus came for you and me. We couldn't do it ourselves. There is no reason to boast. The birth of Jesus destroys our pride. God literally took on a human body because we couldn't save ourselves. He is the king before whom every knee will bow. Yet he uses ordinary people to further his kingdom. So what do we have to boast about? Our boast is only Jesus. The magnitude of Jesus' birth calls for deep humility. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessed privilege it is to understand that Jesus has come. And he's not just here as a seasonal advertisement. He's here to save souls, to bring the, the message of the gospel to our hearts and our lives. And humility that Mary showed is the same response we ought to have. And so I pray that if some are here that have never trusted Christ as Savior, they will do so today. And for those of us who have repented of our sin and confessed Christ, may we afresh lower ourselves under the gracious lordship of our Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.